If you're able, would you remain standing? And this morning we're turning to Psalm 33. We're going to return to our series on 1 John, Lord Willing, on the uh, 20th uh, of February. Uh, This morning we're going to consider Psalm 33. And then on the 13th of February we're going to consider Psalm 12. And then we'll jump back into 1 John. The title for the sermon this morning is Shout for Joy. Psalm 33, this is the word of our Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp, make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song, a play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the, the word of the Lord is right and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of goodness, of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commended, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death, and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him, because we have trusted in His holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we hope in you. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Glorious God, we pray that as we consider this passage, that you would speak to us that you would consider uh, the foolishness of the message proclaimed by a defiled uh, speaker would come and reach our hearts by the power of your Spirit. We pray that you would point us to Christ even as I look at Psalm 33 for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You might wonder, why this psalm? Why Psalm 33? The only answer I have for you is that that's the next psalm. Uh, I'm trying to work my way eventually through the whole book of Psalms, and that's just the next uh, psalm. uh, And and I hadn't spoken on this psalm before. And this is one of those psalms that we really can't figure out when and why it was written. There's no title uh, on it. There's no inspired title attached to this particular psalm. And so we can't really figure out when and why and where it was written. 
as opposed to Psalm 34. If you just look at the following psalm, you're going to see that it has a very detailed title. It says, a psalm of David, Psalm 34 says, a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Now, Psalm 33 has no such title. Uh, the, uh, uh, in the New King James, the uh, title that says the sovereignty of the Lord in creation history on top of Psalm 33 is not part of the psalm. That's something that the editors of the New King James put there. So this psalm is titleless. It's obvious, though, it is obvious that it is a psalm designed for corporate worship. It's a lot of plurals, a lot of things that we are doing. So it's designed for the corporate worship of the church. It's designed to be used in the service of the church as we are doing this morning. It's one of four psalms in book one. The book of Psalms in our Bible is dividing five books. Nobody really knows why, but there are some suggestions, but there's no clear answer why the psalm, the book of Psalms is divided into five psalms. But in, in in, in fine books. In book one is the majority of the, the Psalms of David. And this is only one of four Psalms that doesn't have a title. So in, in some ways it's a special Psalm because it's different than the other ones. Now the first thing that this Psalm teaches us is that praising God moves the believer to hoping in God which is a little bit counterintuitive. It's a little bit different than what we think, that praising God leads to hope, which leads to joy. I think in our minds, we usually think that praise arises from a heart that's hoping and rejoicing in God, and, sometimes, and, and that might be the case sometimes. But the Bible also teaches us that praising God leads us to hope and to joy, which means that there is no time in our lives where we're not ready to praise God. Willem van Gimmeren, which is an Old Testament scholar that focuses on the Psalms, said this concerning Psalm 33, the structure reveals a cyclical pattern by which each generation is encouraged to praise the Lord for past and present evidences of His love. We find that throughout the Psalm, that the, the psalmist points to, points to the past, for the evidences to praise God, and then for the present. We, all of us, if you are in Jesus Christ, we all have evidences now in the present that should lead us to praise God. Then Gamer continues, Consequently, each generation is to expect the Lord to give further reason for praise as the eyes of faith are fixed on Him and on a renewal of His love. So we're going to walk our way through these 22 verses and uh, uh, Lord willing be fed by the Spirit of God as we look at this psalm. Look at verses 1 through 3 and there you're going to see that God's people sing praises to Him. It starts by saying, Rejoice in the Lord, all you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. I like how the ESV translates the first line of the psalm. Shout for joy in the Lord, all you righteous. That word rejoice could be translated as give a ringing cry to the Lord. Just be loud for the Lord in praising Him there. And the major reason that the psalmist gives us, the major reason the Holy Spirit gives us for joy, for us to shout for joy, 
is the nature of God, who he is. You see that in verses 4 and 5, where it says, For the word of the Lord is right, and his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Why should we praise the Lord? The psalmist starts by saying, because of who God is. Not because of circumstances, but because of who God is. We'll come back to these two verses in a moment. And notice here that these praises are in the form of song in verses 2 and 3, where it says, Praise the Lord with the harp, make melody to Him with an instrument of ten strings, sing to Him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. Now, these verses speak of instruments and, and, and singing, uh, and that's how we are to, one of the ways that we are to praise the Lord as we gather together to worship Him. The Christian cannot not sing. Lots of negatives there, right? The Christian cannot not sing. The Christian cannot worship God without singing. Singing is part of who you are as a Christian. I've had uh, people before where I talk to them and say, well, I don't sing. I just listen to people sing in the worship service. That's not what Christians do. Christians sing. doesn't matter how bad your voice is. Now, sometimes we might ask you not to shout as loud, but it doesn't matter how bad. Uh, the old uh, King James translation of Psalm 100 can be as a comfort to a lot of us, where it says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Uh, a lot of us want to keep that translation there. But a Christian sings. A Christian sings because he's happy. A Christian sings because she's sad. A Christian sings because he wants to grow in grace. A Christian sings because she is lacking hope in the Lord. A Christian sings because that's what Christian, Christians do. Keith and uh, Christian Getty in their book, Sing, How Worship Transform Your Life, Family, and Church, said, they say this about singing. They say, Our churches are called to be strong, in the Lord and in His mighty power. We are not people scurrying into a corner, nursing wounds of defeat. We are a city on a hill, stars shining in a dark world, a people of victory and joy, filled with the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit, serving a Savior who shall reign forever. When we sing, it is a battle cry of hope for the wounded, for weary, for the lost. Sing of Jesus. Sing of your Lord and Savior and greatest friend. Sing yourself strong. Sing the church strong. Show up and sing up. And that's the message of this psalm. That's what Christians do. And not only that, the Christian is always trying to get better at singing and playing for the glory of God in worship. The idea of a new song, the way that's written here, is the idea of a better song there in verse 3. And playing more skillfully is self-explanatory. We are trying to grow in our ability to sing before the Lord. It, it, we, we, so it's, it's so important that when we come to worship, that worship doesn't start for you when the elders leave that door. And, stand, and I start standing here. But you've been preparing and practicing all week for that worship and that we're getting better in at singing praises to the Lord because he says that the praise of the righteous is beautiful look at verse 1 again 
Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. It befits him, it befits her, it matches who she is. Conversely, when the righteous refuses to praise the Lord, he's acting contrary to whom he is, to whom she is. Because the righteous, that is, those that have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, cannot not sing. Psalm 40 describes the, the representative conversion of one to Christ, where it says there that the Lord took the psalmist out of a miry pit, miry pit, so he's in, in the darkness, he's in the mud, he's stuck, and removed him, gave, put him upon a rock, that rock is the Lord Jesus Christ, and then what, he, what did he do? And gave him a new song. That is a description of conversion. And, that, and the psalm continues and it says that praises come from thinking about the perfections of the Lord. It doesn't come from our circumstances. It doesn't necessarily come from how we feel. It comes from thinking about the perfections of the Lord, who our God is. Look again at verses 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is right, and all His work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. His word is right. And here it doesn't necessarily mean correct or accurate, though the word of the Lord is that. It means here morally upright, complete. We don't have to doubt it. It is exactly what it says. And it says that all His works are done in truth. Done in truth means done in faithfulness. In all that God does, God is faithful to Himself and to the promises He has made to His people in the covenant of grace. God always acts in faithfulness to Himself. And because He's faithful to Himself, He's faithful to us because He promised us to never leave us nor forsake us. Psalm 27, quoting Hebrews 12, tells us that even when the most sacred relationship, human relationship fails, when father or mother forsake us, the Lord is always going to be with us. Believing that this is true has tremendous practical everyday implications. If we are praising the Lord for who He is, then we see that the good things that happen in our lives and the bad things that happen in our lives only happen because a sovereign God who is faithful to those who trust in Him appointed them to happen. It doesn't remove the pain from the hard things that happen in our lives. It doesn't completely explain why suffering comes into our lives. But it does give meaning to suffering in our lives because we know that God, who promises to work all things for the ultimate good of shaping us to be like Jesus Christ, caused that thing to happen. That's the beauty of Romans 8.28. If we read it with verse 29 attached to it. That God is working all things for the good of those who love Him or call Him to His purpose so that they can be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The why question always has a clear answer to conform us to Christ. 
Why are the good things in our lives happening to us? Why are the bad things in our lives happening to us? To conform us to Christ. It's not a complete answer, but it's a clear answer. And we can praise the Lord for who He is as a faithful God to His people. And, and the psalm describes Him as a God who loves righteousness and justice because they are part of His character of whom He is. Again, in verse 5, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. The, the, the earth, the creation is full of His goodness, His loving kindness. The word translated goodness is not the typical word for goodness in the Old Testament. It's actually a covenantal word that expresses God's heart toward those with whom He covenanted. It's the same word that in verse 22 of this psalm is, is translated mercy. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us. It's the same word that often in the ESV is translated uh, steadfast love. Sometimes the Old King James translated loving kindness. That's God's attitude toward His people. So the earth, the psalm says, is full of, of, of evidences of God's steadfast love for His people, which matches what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, doesn't it? The Psalm 33 says that everywhere you look in, the, in creation, you have a testimony to the goodness of God, to the loving kindness of God, to all people. In Psalm 19, verse 1 through 6, it says, To the chief musician, Psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, no language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom come out of this chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its risings from the one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Creation, the universe, sings a song. And that song is about the goodness of God. Yesterday, coming to our session meeting, got on Highway 16, it's, it's the sun is rising behind Mount uh, Rainier, and the sky is just like full of colors, blue and pink and orange, and the mountain is covered with snow, and you could see, as it were, the glory of God even there. Now, people get caught up with the problem of evil. They say, why? How can a good God have evil in this world? And they get caught up with that. And maybe even you're there, maybe you're not a believer here with us today, and you said, I can't believe in this God that allows all this bad thing, these bad things to happen. But we can get so caught up with that that we forget that all the good, all the good and all the beautiful that exists in this world. What accounts for that? What accounts for altruism? What accounts for selflessness? What accounts for what is beautiful? What accounts for the round, beautiful face of baby red that always brings joy? Every time I turn my phone on, you know, he's smiling at me. What accounts for that? Evolution doesn't, because evolution says the key for preservation, for key for existence is self-preservation. That does not account for beauty. That does not account for goodness. That doesn't account for loving kindness. The only thing that accounts is what the, the heavens declare, God 
the God of the Bible, who created all the things. So don't ask yourself, why does evil exist? Don't ask yourself that because you know your heart. And you know that evil comes from your heart. Ask yourself, why does good, why does beauty exist? Why does baby red's red round face exist? Because there's a God who created all these things. And because of that, because of these wonderful perfections of his character, we praise him. We shout for joy. The psalm also teaches us that we praise God because the Lord is the creator ruler. ruler. See that in verses 6 through 9. The Bible goes out of its way to show how effortlessly it was for God to create all that we know. The stars, the planets just popped into existence at his command. Look at verse 6. For this cause, everyone who... Oops, the wrong psalm. Uh, by, the, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He spoke, and everything came into existence. There was a, a joke, uh, saw, I think it was a far side cartoon, where God and some scientists were going to debate, and the scientist was going to create matter using the scientific, the scientific method, and they got all ready to go, and the scientist was ready to go, and then God said, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. You're using my stuff to create your stuff. No, no, you have to start with, start with your stuff. God just spoke, and everything popped into existence. I have a confession to make. Emily and I and the kids really like watching Survivor. And I always enjoy when they have the, the, the night sky showing where they, they do a, a how do you call it when it goes fast motion? Time, time lapse of the sky. And the darkness of the, the land, you can see the billions of stars. That took one word, one breath, and God created all of them. The waters formed oceans, lakes, water tables, just by the sound of his voice. In verse 7, you are my high... Oh, again, wrong psalm. Uh, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. How? Just by his word. Just by speaking. No, so effortlessly. Nothing is accidental in creation. He commanded it and stood fast. Look at verse 9. Do not... Oh, come on, man. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Everything created exactly like God in, intended for it to be created. That's how it happened. Unlike the theology of the nations, where different gods ruled over different parts, different aspects of nature, the God of the Bible rules over all things because he created them. Remember the ten plagues as, as uh, Moses is trying to convince Pharaoh to let Egypt go, or to let Israel go from Egypt. And, uh, God gives ten plagues to, to, to Israel. Remember them? You, know, you have the, the blood in the river, you had the gnats, you had darkness, you had flies, that frogs, right? What, what is God doing? Say, He's saying, look, Egypt, you have all these petty deities. You have the Lord, the God of the flies. You have the God of the frogs. You have the God of the river. 
You have the God of the, the, the sun, the God of the star. I am the God of all things. I'm sovereign over these petty man-made deities. Unlike all the gods that we can make in our own hearts, the God of the Bible rules over all things because he created all things. And the psalm tells us that humanity is in awe of creation. I think it's fair to say that if you're going to describe what the religion of the Pacific Northwest was, we'd say that some sort of environmentalism would be the religion. It would be the official religion. And which is just another evidence that the scriptures are true. Because Romans 1 tells us exactly that. That all of us know that there is a God. There's no true atheist. The the atheist is one who tries to convince himself, tries to convince herself that there is no God. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 say that. That the atheist is the one that says in his heart, and the, the, the way that they write there is a continuous saying, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. Because if they stop saying that, they see God. So they have to be with their ears plugged, their eyes closed, and constantly preaching to themselves that there is no God. Because creation itself shows that God is a creator, ruler. People of God, we are to be in fear, in awe of the one who created it, not of creation. We praise God because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We don't worship ourselves. Look what it says in verse 8. Let the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Again, uh, Van Gimmeren, that scholar I told you earlier, says, Rainstorms, hurricanes, flash floods, subterranean waters, and the mighty oceans inspire awe because of their power in existence apart from man. How much greater we should stand in awe of the Lord who created all those things. I've been a swimmer my whole life. And I served as a lifeguard in the ocean. And in my years of doing that, I've never seen somebody who was a good swimmer um, and respected the ocean drown. It's only those who don't respect the ocean that drown. We have this innate respect for the powerful things of creation. We can't control it. We can tell there's a hurricane coming. We can tell that for like two weeks. And yet we can't do anything about that. A tornado shows up and no warning. Earthquake shows up with no warning. We know it's going to be snow and cold two weeks in advance. And yet it paralyzes our entire society because of just the sheer power of creation. If that's what, and then there's us. The ingenuity of humanity, the intricacy of of the human body, the power of the human brain. If that's all true, can you imagine the being who created all those things? That being is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revealed to us in the Lord 
Jesus Christ. The nations are to fear him, but the fear of the nations apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ should be more like terror. Because they know they sinned against that God. Much like Luther was so fearful and terrorized by God when he read that we had to have the righteousness of God. He thought that God was going to judge us according to how right he was till he found out, no, he's talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ to us that gave him freedom. The psalm also teaches us that we have to praise God because the Lord is the ruler of humanity. We see that in verses 10 through 17. And here we have a transition from caring for creation in general to concentrating on humanity specifically. And the psalmist teaches us that regardless of whom the superpower is, regardless of the military arsenal, no one can deter the Lord from executing his plans. Look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the, na- of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. And look down to verse 16. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for its safety. Neither shall it deliver any but its great strength. No matter who the superpower is, there's nothing that can be done to keep the Lord from executing his plans. During the French Revolution, 1789, of the fall of Bastille, that's considered the, 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 the inception of the republic in France, one of the things they did is try to make everything as multiples of 10. They have a base 10 for everything, including the week. They want a week of 10 days with one day off. And the main reason they did that was to stop the Sabbath. To stop people from worshiping God because they knew that it was intrinsic for God's plan of salvation to have a beacon on the hill that met every seventh day on the first day of the week to worship Him. Guess what happened? How many days do we have in a week? Seven. Because no power can undo what God has decided to do. Proverbs 19, 21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Proverbs 21, 30, There's no wisdom of understanding or counsel against the Lord. That reminds us of Psalm 2, where the nations of the earth are conspiring against God, and God looks down and laughs. Isn't that cute? They think they can stop me. In Isaiah 46, one of the most powerful passages about God, 46 verses 6 through 10, says this, Remember this, and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, you, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do All my pleasure, which includes saving a multitude of people for himself. Is that worth praising him for? Should we shout for joy? Because our God is gathering a people that cannot be numbered from every tribe, from every tongue, from every ethnic group to praise him for all eternity. We shout for joy because of that. And now we get so concerned. Oh, the situation in Ukraine. We're going to start 
We have an inept federal government that's going to start World War III and so on. And yet, the God we worship today is the same God who centuries ago got the most powerful ruler on earth to behave like a cow for seven years eating grass. That God can do that today if he chooses to, to do that. And no one will stop him from doing that. And the psalmist tells us that those who submit to God are blessed. Verse 12 says, Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Now the word translated nation is much broader than what we think of nation. We think of nations as countries today. According to the UN, there are 195 countries in the world today. But the word nation here is more about people's group. A group of people with similar characteristics and a common language or a common tradition. Joshua Project estimates there is 17,000 people's group, people groups on earth today. 6,800 of them unreached. That is completely don't know anything about Christ and there's nobody trying to get Christ to them. And it is great for a people group, for a group of people with ethnic ties to trust in the Lord and to follow Him. But I think ultimately this nation, this people group that is blessed is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Testament grabs the promises of Exodus 19 and the promises of Hosea 1 and 2, who seem to have been directed at Israel as a nation in the Old Testament. And it says, you know what? This is about the church. You remember uh, Exodus 19, 6 says that uh, God is speaking to Israel, I'll make you a nation of priests. And as in Hosea 1 and 2, the refrain is, you who weren't a people will be my people. And in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness to his marvelous light, who once were not my people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Who is that? That's the church of Jesus Christ. We are the ones that submit to the Lord, and therefore we are blessed. We're blessed regardless of any circumstance in our lives because God is our God. And then the psalmist teaches that all mankind is accountable to God. Look at verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their Works. Nothing happens without the Lord's knowledge. Nothing is too small to get past Him. In verse 15 it says, He considers all the events individually. He has His eyes upon everything. Everything happens. And everything, everyone's accountable to Him. And then the psalmist teaches us that we are to praise God because the Lord loves His people. In verses 18 and 19. Now the scope narrows even more to the people who fear him, different from the fear of verse 8, but a fear that knows the Lord Jesus Christ. The eye of the Lord being upon somebody means that his loving care is upon that person. And notice the total surrender to the Lord on the part of those who fear the Lord. Look at verses 18 and 19. 
Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive in deliverance. You see the complete reliance and trust in the Lord, hoping his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness to deliver them in this life and the life to come. We praise him for that. And because of all that, we hope in the Lord who loves us. Verses 20 through 22. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Praising God because he's sovereign will lead us to hope. Knowing who God is will lead us to hope. Listen to what Spurgeon says concerning the psalm. And this is not from um, his commentary on the psalm. This is from his devotional book, Morning and Evenings. This is from the morning of July 2nd. And he's speaking about these last verses. And he says this, Blessed is the fact that Christians can rejoice even in the deepest distress. Although trouble may surround them, they still sing. And like many birds, they sing best in their cages. The waves may roll over them, but their souls soon rise to the surface and see the light of God's countenance. They have a buoyancy about them which keeps their head always above the water and helps them to sing amid the tempest. God is with me still. To whom shall, we, to whom shall the glory be given? Oh, to Jesus. It is all by Jesus. Trouble does not necessarily bring consolation with it to the believer. But the presence of the Son of God in the fiery furnace with him fills his heart with joy. He's sick and suffering. But Jesus visits him and makes his bed for him. He is dying. And the cold, chilly waters of Jordan are gathering about him up to the neck. But Jesus puts his arms around him and cries, Fear not, beloved. As the departing saint wades through the stream and the billows gather around him and heart and flesh fail him, the same voice sounds in his ears, Fear not, I am with thee, be not dismayed, I am thy God. As he nears the borders of the infinite unknown and is almost affrighted to enter the realm of shades, Jesus says, Fear not. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Thus, strengthened and consoled, the believer is not afraid to die. Nay, he is even willing to depart, for since he has seen Jesus as the morning star, he longs to gaze upon him as the sun in his strength. Truly, the presence of Jesus is all the heaven we desire. He is at once the glory of our brightest day, the comfort of our nights. And that's why we hope in God. The character of God, and especially the sovereign control of all things, lead us to praise Him. And our praises move us to hope. We hope in God because He has demonstrated that He is utterly faithful to us in the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we shout for joy. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. We thank you for preserving for us in an inerrant way this word from a brother centuries ago. 
We pray that your spirit would have its way, his way with us, with your word. We pray that you would convict us in our hearts and lead us to praise that will lead us to hope. For asking Jesus' name, amen.